Hello and welcome to the Bald Move Television Podcast. We are, of course, the officially unofficial podcast for literally all of television. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. And today we're going to be narrowing that focus down quite a bit to a single, single solitary episode of a excellent miniseries thus far, Chernobyl. Uh, we'll be uh, giving full coverage to episode two. Please remain calm. Hard to remain calm, Jim, when there's three billion trillion <laughs> bullets firing all around. Three, yeah. So hmm. I've heard of bullet hell before, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> this, these are numbers that like Carl Sagan talks about in Cosmos when he's talking yeah. about the universal scale. Yeah, uh, it's it's insane to to hear these numbers. It almost doesn't mean anything right. when you say three billion trillion. Uh, or no, it's like three million grams putting off a billion trillion bullets each. Right. Like right. What does that even mean? I know. Uh, what does it mean when millions of those are streamed through your body? It means you're dead, yeah. apparently. It means yeah. your Nothing skin good. burns, your helicopter crashes, and yeah. potentially 60 million people are displaced out of <laughs> Eastern uh, Europe because of radiation. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because we were pondering whether or not those men that were leading the doomed effort to open the floodgates to flood the reactor with water were actually going to do any good or not. <laughs> uh, we actually uh, found out this week that they might doom the entire continent because opening yeah. those floodgates allowed these vast water tanks to that should have been emptied to be flooded. And now we've got radioactive lava. Which is a thing that Jared Harrison invents this episode <laughs> that's going to heat the, come across this water uh, in, in less than 48 hours and create a what's called a thermal explosion from the expanse of the steam cons constrained in these big steel and concrete water tanks. It's going to blow up with a force between two and four kilotons. Destroying the other remaining two, three reactors, <laughs> and they they mentioned just like all the countries affected, but they spe specifically said that Belarus and Ukraine would be uninhabitable for at least a hundred million years, impacting sixty million people. No, uh, no, a hundred years. What did I say? You said a hundred million. Uh, you know, <laughs> if if you're a person alive, it might as well be a hundred million. Yeah, come on, it's Mr. Sagan. Not everything could be on the universe. That's true. Scale. That's true. Uh, for at least for at least a hundred uh, hundred years, yeah. and it's going to involve sixty million people. Um, I honestly, that was shocking to me because I didn't know that the potential for harm was that high. I didn't either. I assumed this would be a fairly isolated, you know, on this kind of scale, a fairly isolated incident right we're like okay the winds take it a few hundred kilometers right. in either direction and and maybe into a couple surrounding countries but right. to, to get to germany to get right. to like the point where you have school children in uh frankfurt not being able to go outside yeah like it's essentially uh, everything play. west of chernobyl for like a thousand miles is going to be a dead zone it seems like it yeah um you know a couple lunches because uh, we have this uh, segment for our club members um that we have lunch every Friday where we just get on camera and we talk about whatever people want us to talk about. And someone asked us about our thoughts on nuclear energy and how it could be used to, you know, help us step stone away from uh, fossil fuels on the road towards renewables. And I was kind of like more, hey, you know, uh, I think the, the threats are overblown. And look at the worst disaster, Chernobyl. It wasn't that bad. And you were more like, you know, I've been thinking a lot and it seems like Ooh, it's real dangerous. It's it's stuff like this that makes me think, ah, I mean, I, I believe in science, I believe in scientists, but when they say something like this can never happen again, and when I'm seeing evidence from 30 years ago, the same scientist saying this shouldn't have been able to happen this time, uh, and you're talking about uh, 
destroying an entire continent perhaps for a hundred years it's i don't know i would love i would love some some nuclear scientists to kind of write in and and maybe assure us or maybe they but but it, it does seem like after something like this uh i have to i have to do a little bit more thought uh about being as pro nuke as i am yeah i mean my my thing is look we have these great renewables here um mm-hmm. that we can really get on board with but like there's also yes the element of danger that's associated with nuclear technology uh i i think you you said something that is kind of the thing that sticks with me too, which is they said this couldn't happen. Right. And it's not that I don't trust scientists. I yeah. trust scientists more than just about anybody else on this planet. Right. Uh, the problem is that scientists don't know everything. Right. And and so when we're messing with these forces, uh, there may be something that they overlook. Right. So. And in this case, it was, oh, well, you know, the reactor couldn't possibly explode. That's right. that's just not a thing that can happen. And you see Jared Harris in this episode when he's confronted with the question, how does this RKM or RMK yeah. uh, reactor explode? He goes, well, I, I'm not prepared to answer that. Right. It's <laughs> a good scientist answer. It, it, yes, that's the best scientist answer is I don't know. Um, so, like, to say, okay, well, we're, you know, 50 years on from this or whatever, 30 years yeah. on from this and we've got better technologies and we have fail safes installed yes and i think those are all great things but are uh, how sure are we about those right and you know also you got to weigh that against it seems like the near scientific certainty that we are going to disrupt millions and millions of not tens and hundreds of millions of people over the next few sure uh, decades of global warming it's like it's, which very, is which is worse yeah very tough very tough choices and there's probably not a completely safe uh, well, we're, yeah, it just seems it seems like uh, most people say we're beyond the point of like safe, inexpensive, easy fixes to these problems. Everything we're going to choose is going to be fraught with peril, uh, potential political instability and economic devastation. Um, but yeah, because that's that's the thing. Like I, I again, I didn't know that Chernobyl could go as bad as it almost it, it could have done. Like they were forty eight hours yeah. away, and if not for the scientists um, stepping forward. And saying uh, the solution you guys are doing, you guys aren't thinking through all the variables because um, it's weird. It's one of those things where it's like scientists got us into this situation, but scientists also got us out of it. Um, yeah, they're the only ones who can get us out of it. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting to me that uh, this character, Ilana, I, mm-hmm. I think is her name, uh, played by Emily Watson, mm-hmm. is kind of an amalgamation from what I've right. heard of of not just like a single. She's not a real character. But she's sort of an amalgamation of like hundreds of scientists who came together and noticed these problems and They're... said, we need to come up with these solutions and help fix it all. Yeah, I mean, it's you hate when they have to make concessions to Hollywood. But as they were explaining, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, if you had literally hundreds of scientists working together, both officially, unofficial, on the record, off the record and formally, formally and all contributing little things about, oh, don't forget about this. Don't do this. Like, oh, what about this research? What about our yeah. reading? Say this like. How do you do that in a five-hour miniseries? Well, the answer is you unrealistically collapse them down into one single person. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I, the the, wor- the worry I had when I when I found them saying that in the like on the podcast I listened to and on the behind the episode is that it might make uh, Emily Watson seem like a crazy know-it-all. Yeah, yeah. Because like, uh, and and I, I like that part too. Like after the first episode, I was thinking Jared Harris is just a fucking man, you know, uh, this leg 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 loss leg off, that he's just like you know he is an expert and he knows the stuff and he's going to steer the ship. But like 
it just goes to show that even a very smart person without accurate information is is not always correct. Also, mm-hmm. something I learned in a podcast, uh, the writer of this uh, Chernobyl series said that Legolov uh, was not actually an expert on these RMBK reactors. He what? worked at this very prestigious nuclear facility uh, uh, institute and was a qualified physicist, but his uh, background was much more in like uh, chem- chemistry. Hmm. So like you know okay uh, th- th- so he understands the the concepts behind it but he's not familiar yeah. with like the engineering part of it yeah, well he's that. probably i mean i, I don't like I, the, i'm trying to think it's like it's more of like it's kind of like uh if, if a mechanic is built as an expert in corvette engines mm-hmm. but he's actually just uh just a, a mechanic sure you know yeah. like like he's a familiar he with the principles engines, but, but he doesn't know the ins and outs and intimate details of like the actual power plant and things like that and yeah i i don't know because i don't know whether because the, the series itself i don't feel like has done a good job showing whether um this was just a mistake that the russians made of like well this guy's the head of this particular nuclear institute so he must be mm-hmm. um or maybe he wrote a paper on it one time or whether you know, he saw he was the only guy in the room that was even remotely qualified to talk about it and overstated his credentials just to, they, they don't really say that. In fact, the only way I know this is because of the damn podcast. So yeah, I it doesn't seem like they wanted really anything from him other than, you know, this technical input. Yeah. Um, they, they didn't want to hear, Oh, well here are the nuances of what I know and, yeah. and versus what we need to know here. Uh, but it's interesting to me. Like I came away from the first episode going oh my god the denial that these people are in these fools this 3.6 reading makes no sense if you Mm -hmm. just take a second and look at it Mm -hmm. but then you have jared harris who comes in and says let's dump boron and sand on this thing right and it turns out he fucked up he didn't have all the information he didn't know enough about the scenario to make the right call i wonder if this is so you know in a realistic scenario i don't know how much they're embellishing here but i wonder if the writers intended to make this point about how we should be more sympathetic to the people who made the original calls Mm -hmm. although i will say that um diatnov is probably the most culpable in all this and Mm -hmm. i mean the show says that right up front right like he's the guy and jared harris blows his head off or or hangs himself Uh um but but it did make me step back and say are these people to be looked at a little more sympathetically because they simply didn't have all the required knowledge or information uh in the moment yeah, especially when you think about the time in the 1980s, um, how little, how unsophisticated people's views on kind of technology were anyway. Um, I mean, there's, it's so, in, it's just so, uh, when I read articles, there's so much politics mixed up with it, as is anything. Because, you know, like all art is political. You know, you're either maintaining the status quo or you're questioning it. Both of those things are intensely poli- political. But it's hard not to, like, I see a lot, and there's some of this feedback we're going to be talking about, where like people like smugly assert that this couldn't happen in the United States because you know Soviet communism <laughs> was this and that, and it caused this mm-hmm. kind of. But honestly, I when I go through this and see, like I think they happen for different reasons, but things happen very similarly. Like the the speech that this uh, this guy played by Stellan Skarsgård gives uh, to kind of motivate the volunteers to go into a doomsday. It's not the same that like an American no. politician would give, but the message is the same. Yeah, like sacrifice. You, you, who is the one willing to trade their life for millions of people? There, there. That that is something that appeals to almost every person. That that doesn't appeal to everyone, 
but it's like if you give that speech to a room full of 100 people, you're going to get your volunteers. Yeah, I, I mean, the the military is essentially predicated on that whole idea, right? Yeah. The fact that we have someone who's willing to pick up a gun and go fight to protect, you know, the freedoms and that, then it's that we very, have. And it's also like, you know, people like, oh, look how closed-minded and pig-headed these people are. But, like, also I think it did a good job of, like, if you can convince, like, if you can get through anyone's political apathy to, like, make them realize this is a fucking critical threat right now. Like, when Jared Harris grabs a pilot and says... If you fly over this reactor, I guarantee yeah. in 24 hours you will be praying for the bullet this guy's threatening you with. <laughs> and I see that in American culture, too. Like, we get politically complacent, and we don't want to deal with the uh, the repercussions of the way we vote and how that impacts the world. And then when things blow up on our face, we want to be like, woe is me. But when it seems like time and time again, when the chips are down and when you got life and death that people do try to pitch together and... um you know, I'm like, because it's, it's funny because I woke up this morning and I did this thing thing I always do. I was reading the front page of Reddit and one of the articles bubbled my attention is the fact that there are now something like 37,000 open cases from 9-11 first responders and people affected in those blocks of New York City that are having like way crazy elevated rates of like cancer hmm. and other medical conditions involving the toxic chemicals and the construction materials that they breathed in. Um we sent in hundreds and thousands of people in there to do whatever it took to to put out those fires to rescue people. We didn't ask like, what are they bathing in? What are they breathing in? What are the is this adequate yeah. safety? We uh, and and it's kind of a semi scandal that uh, here is the American political reaction to this. It's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna simulate it for me. Pretend that I am actually walking past a literal graveyard. That's what the American political response is to this disaster uh -huh. in a capitalist democratic society. I think it's way I, I just think it's this way too smug and self-serving to be like, oh, these fucking Russians. Sure. Ugh, what they're they their society had unique problems and challenges and also advantages and disadvantages, just like our society would have dealing with a similar thing. Yeah. So. I, I like that. Like, I don't think our politicians would threaten to throw someone from a helicopter for disobeying them. Uh -huh. I don't know. Maybe a few of them would. <laughs> I, I've seen a few Tom Clancy shows. Yeah. Uh, it might happen. But like this, like pig, like like the, there's this one bureaucrat who, like the scientist says, "I'm a scientist. You're a shoe factory manager." And he goes, "Yeah, and I'm the one in charge. Fuck off." Uh, That's so American. That, That's so fucking American. <laughs> I literally see people say that to scientists all the time uh -huh. about things that they think they know more about. So it's like, I just, it really bothers me when people are so smug and dismissive about the problems in our own society and like heap scoring upon uh, ones and the other. But we'll get to that in feedback. Um, it's Jared Harris time, baby. Jared Harris time. Uh, Finally. It he, took one full episode to get to him, but we yeah, got him now. Yeah. Don't let go. Yeah, I thought it's, I mean, so the interesting thing about this is um, I wonder how important was Jared Harris blowing this alarm at the time he did? Because it does feel like that this, unlike many, many other um, tragedies that a nation could cover up, is maybe the first of its kind where you can literally see the disaster from space. Uh, yeah. Like a Swedish mm -hmm. science, like, I guess what happened is like a Swedish worker at a power plant was coming in like the first guy of his shift he walked in through the radiation detector and it blared because he just came in from outside <laughs> and like what the okay. fuck so very much like this where they open the window exactly. and go oh shit it's not like the K the cia or mi6 was running their nuclear detectors and like oh my god so it's like literally a civilian like noticed 
Jesus Christ, what's up with all this radiation? Um, I guess one of the things is a lot of these radioactive isotopes have like almost fingerprints. So you can tell like what stock of uranium it came from, Uh what plant, sometimes even what reactor. And they're able to quickly, oh, this is Chernobyl. It's fucking blown up. Yeah. So like there's Jared Harris might have gotten the Soviets going like 12 to 24 hours earlier, but it also doesn't seem like it made his contributions maybe in the grand scheme of things are going to make that much of a difference. Well, I I think the the most important part of of Jared Harris's uh, alarm here is Mm -hmm. that he's the guy that they brought in. Because yeah. I think the the resistance to believing these outsiders about oh really you're 400 kilometers away and you say this is a pro- uh-huh sure we got this and you could see them it, maybe like oh they're putting they're making German children play inside well that's just to embarrass us yeah like, they yeah. know that it's safe but they want to their their fucking capitalist dog media is wanting to rake us over to coals right but him you know him being the guy that they brought in to tell them and then having uh, Gorbachev here. Mm-hmm. Who who seemed to be pretty rational about the whole thing, right? You yeah. you saw Stellan Skarsgård, whose character's name I don't know. Um, he was kind of ready to blow Jared Harris off, mm-hmm. but l- luckily there was enough force put into uh, the thing that he had to say that he got the attention of right. the the general secretary there. Yeah, this guy is Brezhnev, or I, I think it's something like that. The, Ste- the Stellan Skarsgård character. Uh, seem like he's going to be in the mold of those pig-headed bureaucrats, but like it does seem like he's got enough sense about him yeah. that once you penetrated that, he actually is a pretty... Mm-hmm. Uh, he seems like he might be the right guy to lead because I was very impressed with his like his um, his his speech to like to motivate the people to 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 solve this uh, reactor water problem. Um, there's a lot of indi- individual heroics. Like I thought when yes. they had the. Like the brigadier general or whatever, who's from the decontamination team, and he finds out that they they want to run in there with like a you know get a dosimeter from the heart of the reactor, and Jared Harris is like, even with all the lead shielding might not be enough, and he's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, then I'll do it. Yeah, Rather than order one, that's of it. heroism. It's yeah, it's fucking heroism and patriotism, and something that I uh found pretty moving. That mm-hmm. you know, like you, you like in contrast to all these other like party apparatchik guys that are trying to pass the buck like this guy uh you know he know he knows the cost of of lives and something they made in the podcast is you know when jared harris asked because because th- th- to solve this problem of the reactor exploding with the force of four to two me- f- two to four megatons they're gonna have to drain this water and their men are gonna have to ra- wade waist high up in the radioactive water uh, and likely die if the radiation is as high as they as they fear. Um, he's like, you know, we need your permission to Gorbachev uh, and makes it clear that we're ordering people to death. And I thought it was um, the, 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 the writer in the podcast made it clear that he wanted to make sure that. I think a lot of people would assume that like the evil empire, as, as Ronald Reagan characterized the Soviet Union, would just be like, okay, fuck it. How, how many you need? Three, five, a uh, uh, hundred thousand? How many lives do we need to pump in this to make it go away? Mm-hmm. But no, these, like, Gorbachev does seem like he was a pretty reasonable person who is a sober-minded civil servant, uh, and those things weighed on him. Yeah. And I guess they had a policy throughout this price, crisis where they called counting lives because... Many, many solutions are put on the table, and a lot of times going solution A or B, they literally like, well, this will work, and it's going to make five people die, and this will work, and it's going to make 20 people die, so hmm. I guess let's go with the five death. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of like a bedrock principle of like, you know people are going to die, 
just like this is a war. You know, you got three billion, three billion trillion bullets being fired. People are going to die in this war. Uh, How can we minimize that? And also, you also have to strike a balance between the individual lives being utterly spent and millions of lives dying or hundreds of thousands of people getting thyroid cancer. It's it's a real fucking de- it's a real fucking uh real fucking philosophical and moral quandary that you find yourself into. Uh on on the topic of heroism and, and talking about, you know, the guy who drives the truck in, I thought they did a really excellent job of just sort of injecting every frame of that hosing down the truck scene yeah. uh with radiation. Like I yeah. felt the radiation coming off this truck. Yeah. Uh which I guess I had been prepared for because what I wasn't thinking about was sort of the clothing that the firefighters were wearing, the clothing that these responders were wearing, being contaminated to the point where you could you could get seriously ill just touching them or yeah. being close to them. That, I that, that's you can become irradiated to where a yeah. human body, a piece of clothing, a baby. Like the the one thing I thought starts when the when the bo- the man is desperately trying to get his hand his baby across the hospital barrier they're not allowed just like just take my child and get him as far away from her as you can like yeah. oh, and of course that's delivered to a character who is currently carrying a baby inside her uh, <laughs> I, I thought that st- that shit was really powerful and also the like the old doctor who's trying to treat these burns with like fucking witch doctor shit yeah milk and sure. and um, that's another thing they made in the podcast is like. You know, the Soviet Union in the 80s, like most of the world, was not very progressive when it came to women in politics. But they were actually above average progressive in women being involved in like STEM and medicine. And they're showing that through the female scientist and the female doctor. Like this yeah. female doctor could come up to this doctor and be like, you fool, stop dousing people with milk, get them naked, get all this sh- clothes down to the basement. And the, mm-hmm. the director of the series pointed out on the podcast that like in that hospital today is that same heap of clothes that was dumped in the basement and no one ever came back for. Wow. Like that's, that's like highly radioactive <laughs> fire, firefighting clothes down there. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, all, all those doctors are obviously heroes. They're sticking, you know, by, by their patients and they're giving them the treatment they need, despite what is obviously a detrimental thing for their health. Uh, and then this, uh, we talked about Skarsgård's character, but the thing that struck me is that he, both he and Legasov understand that they are basically signing a contract for their own death here. Like they, by sticking around this reactor, by helping to solve this problem, they themselves will be dead, as Jared Harris says, in five years. And you can tell that that's the first time the Skarsgård character, like, yeah, because he's like, he's oh, like, I mean, it knocks him to his yeah, to his ass. We, we got to get these people out of here. He's like, okay, whatever. We're still here. He's like, yeah, and we're going to be dead in five years. Uh-huh. I I love it because yeah. Jared Harris is this entire episode going around to people just telling them when they're going to die, yeah, right? Yeah. Like like you're you fucked. helicopter pilot, you're going to die in a day. Yeah. You Stellan Skarsgård, 5 years max. Yeah. yeah. This person's dead. These people are likely going to be dead in a week. You know, <laughs> yeah. we need we need one of those internet uh like when am I going to die calculators with Jared Harris face on there just, just telling you or tomorrow the Harris scale of how fucked you are <laughs> right. like your death is immediate your death is in 24 hours <laughs> and you'll be begging for death your death is yeah um I, there's a they told a story in the podcast just to give you an idea of how radioactive a person can become and still live uh one of these plant engineers was like helping a guy who later dies but he had inhaled this radioactive particulate from the reactor. Oh, boy. And when the guy got, like, he's, like, you know, leaning on him, and he's trying to get him out of this hallway, when he finally got safe, um, there was later on this guy's back a burn imprint in the shape of a human arm and hand 
from how fucking radioactive the dude that he was carrying was. It's like, wow. and, you, and it's, it's it's like we were talking about in the first episode. I don't have a good idea of just how fucked everyone is. Like, you, there, there's fifty thousand people. <laughs> they evacuated a town of fifty thousand in less than twenty four hours. Okay. They took a, a thousand buses well from the organized. Kiev Kiev bus system, uh-huh. just convoyed them there. The police went around and said, "Grab! You're allowed one suitcase. You've got to leave now." And uh, by all accounts, it was a fairly orderly. There's a really cool scene of like, uh, like everybody getting on the buses, and you see the old fucker that said, "This is going to be our moment to shine." Yeah, and, is this guy busted down to just or like a civvy now? Is he? I don't. I, I think I don't know. I, I, or did I, he, I, they just wake him up in his PJs? And yeah, I wasn't sure what they were trying to say with that. Because I would think he would not get out of there on a regular ass bus. Like right. he would be off off on a, a helicopter or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, like, how, um, I mean, it was, you know, one of the problems of the Soviet Union, of course, is that uh, it's, a, it's a supposedly workers' paradise where there's no class and everyone's equal, but it turns out the people in power mm. are driving limousines and, yeah. and having, you know, like, like, like <laughs> eating off a crystal, out of, or drinking out of crystal glasses and off fine china, like, Getting the good yeah. caviar. I mean, if, you, if you've, you've, we've all read Animal Farm. Mm-hmm. I think we all know, like, uh, uh, how 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 the what the um, what are the perverse uh, incentives of society like that? Um, mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I thought I thought all that was that was really well done, and the fact that um, it kind of it kind of galvanizes this guy though, because uh, when he's given that speech in front of because people are like, why the fuck would we go in this reactor for four hundred rubles, which I assume is like a pittance. Um, and, uh, a, and a promotion and a career at another reactor when we're probably going to die. And he's like, look, Hey, uh, I spit on the people that made this responsible. Uh, and I, I really trying to come to grips with what has already going to happen to me. But the fact is what we're doing here is going to save millions of people's lives. And if that's not enough, then I won't believe it. And yeah, you know, they get their, they get their volunteers. Uh, I think they did a really good job laying out uh a how a nuclear reactor works like i had read on wikipedia but you know reading it is one thing having explained to you as if you're a layperson which this guy was uh it it makes a lot of sense and i i liked the scenes where they sort of deconstructed what was wrong with the solution they had come up with because when they said oh my god the tanks uh the tanks are full i'm like so what Right. Who the fuck cares right. about tanks? Like I was Gorbachev, right? Asking the question. Yeah. Yeah. And uh-huh. uh, so they did a really good job explaining what a serious disaster that could be. Right. Because you think about like just the one reactor uh, blowing up. Well, yeah. now you got three surrounding it. At least three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I assume reactor four is the last reactor. Yeah, it is. It, it, uh, there's but, no reason that should be true, but it, it actually r- happens to be. <laughs> right. Uh, it, but then they could take out, it could cause a chain reaction. And unless you're Keanu Reeves on a moped, you're not getting out of that. Uh, so th- they did a great job impressing upon me the scale of this disaster, which we talked about, but yeah. it just blew me away. Uh, do you know why, like one of the most gripping scenes I thought was when they're trying to drop his boron sand... Uh, and I, because yeah. I, in my previous uh, uh, reading on this, they mentioned that they had, this was their initial attempt to put out the fire, and uh, they mentioned like the 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 book that I read made it seem like it was kind of like mysterious of why the accuracy was so bad in dumping the the sand, but it seems now it's like uh, the the helicopter pilots were in this weird thing. It's like they had to like either 
you know, swing it over before they released or uh-huh. hope that the wind would carry? Because if you flew right over the reactor, it's not just a bad idea and like you're going to die in a couple of weeks, but it seems like it just disintegrated the helicopter from either the heat or the radiation. I'm not, I'm yeah. not actually don't know what mechanically caused that helicopter to break uh-huh. up, but it either. did. So that explains like why the sand was having difficulty getting to the, the actual part of the fire they need to put it out. Yeah. Um, those three guys that go in, I thought they did a great, like that last scene where their flashlights are failing one by one because of the intense radiation and they're going to be chest deep in radioactive water, presumably in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, and, and with the radio, the Geiger counter motif going like so, so good. Yeah. It does feel like that's just a thing for the show. I don't, I don't know what the point of even bringing a counter in there is. Well, like, because you like, know it's highly irradiated. Right. You know you're not going to live beyond a week or so right. past this. What What are you even doing? But I guess like if you go can go down one hallway to get to the place you need to get, and it's like radiation level yeah. X, and then the other hallways radiation's ten X, and uh-huh. like one you can survive for five minutes, the other you can survive for, like that makes a big. Like, I, I definitely think <laughs> since this is a thing you can't see, you got to have a rate just so you know. <laughs> You know, at least the audience knows. Uh, yeah. I, I do think, though, that maybe that indicates what happened to the helicopter because their their lights start to go out, not not from any heat. Obviously, that would kill them uh-huh. first. Um, but the electronics seem to fail yeah. based on, I assume, the radiation that's hitting them. Yeah. So maybe that's what happened to the helicopter too. It was the radiation that took it out. It's just a radiation is such a weird thing because it's like you know what, like we talked about it's these invisible bullets flying around and we don't usually have a lot of experience of like what happens when matter is disrupted in that sort of way. Yeah. So like um, it, it kind of like you know like an EMP like that's like the the nuke part of a nuke without the thermal explosion can mm-hmm. take out like we've seen it in how many different fucking shows like it can take out a huge area of the electronics and um so it makes sense that like this is broad spectrum radiation so you know i'm sure that ionizing radiation doesn't do anything good for circuit boards it's so weird yep. though because i thought it's not like the plane just dropped the helicopter dropped out of the sky like the rotor started coming off and yeah shit. and i know that like if you radiate metal it can make it brittle and it can do all other kinds of um interesting properties did you know that like pre-1945 steel is like a precious commodity in the world because, because every steel made the after Hiro- the Hiroshima bomb has trace huh. amounts of radiation. There's some applications where you cannot have any, like like medical applications and like scientific huh. instruments. And there's like finite limited supply of steel made before that time. And we can never make it again. Because ever since Hiroshima and Nagasaki and all the fucking nuclear explosions that we did around the world in testing, like there's enough background radiation that you can no longer make steel that's not radioactive. Eh, Elon Musk will bring some back from space. <laughs> yeah, well, fine. that's man. What a what a great profit motive. You need a moon yeah. base so you can just make steel, make pristine lunar uh-huh. steel <laughs> or Martian steel. Got some of that moon metal. Um, yeah. So, uh, anything else you want to talk about before we get the feedback? Because we got no, a decent amount it. of it. Um, I am fully invested. This was an hour and ten minutes, uh, or like slightly longer an hour episode, and I felt like it lasted twenty minutes. Yeah, I, I would. If all of these episodes were available now, I would have binged them easily, easily on that yeah. first night. Yeah. Before we get to feedback, a few notes on housekeeping. Of course, we are currently being dominated by Game of Thrones stuff. Uh, that's all throughout uh, baldmove.com. Uh, this Wednesday, 
in celebration of that, we have our Super Serious Film Fest Fantasy, which keeps rolling on. Excalibur comes out today on Wednesday, and you want to subscribe to the movies feed that contains that because we're also going to be reviewing John Wick very early next week, John Wick 3 as well. Uh, also tonight on twitch.tv slash baldmove, Cecily and I are going to be co-oping some more Mario World 3D, and uh, next Tuesday, immediately after our live recording Game of Thrones podcast, Jim and I are going to get on the Twitch to play some of uh, the browser-based uh, Game of Thrones game, uh, Winter is Coming, and we're also going to broadcast some of our uh, classic, uh, what is that, Telltale? Telltale, yeah. House Forester, the Game of Thrones game, um, mm-hmm. which uh, is pretty entertaining. And then Friday for Bald Move TV, we're going to be watching a few episodes or an episode of Catch-22, the new show on Hulu starring George Clooney. Uh, and it's produced and directed by him as well, I believe. Hmm. Uh, Fleabag on Amazon. That's season two of a returning show. Uh, and then the Muhammad Ali documentary, What's My Name, on HBO. Uh, that's all that's coming out here on baldmove.com. All right. First up, Alina. Very happy recovering this series. This is a separate pod. I've been looking forward to it for a while. I grew up in a family where Chernobyl always existed as an event, quote-unquote, and I've seen many a documentary over the years. I'm guessing that maybe uh, this uh, Alina is Eastern European or perhaps Russian herself. Could be. Uh, I've seen many a documentary over the years. You'll probably get recommendations for the various BBC, Discovery, etc. documents, but I'd also like to add the following recommendations. Uh, Chernobyl Heart, a profoundly grim uh, looking at the effects of the health of children born after Chernobyl. Uh, 1986.04.26.ps, which is a whole playlist from a project that used restored archive footage and interviews with liquidators, which is, I don't think they've got to this on the show, but I guess that's the Russian name for the people involving the containment and deactivation of this reactor. They called them all liquidators. Hmm. Um, because their insides turn it no. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I'll be going back to this a lot through the miniseries to compare set design, etc. It'll be really be interesting to see how certain things are recreated. Uh, for example, the cleanup of the graphite, the lead armor, etc. One thing we didn't talk about is how it's already eerie that this town, once it's completely abandoned and you've got like Jared Harris and Skarsgård standing on the top of the building and they just kind of look out, it's like this, that's what the city looks like even today. With yeah, like, a few more plants. <laughs> it has completely like you know people boned out. Fifty thousand people boned off from that, and no one has returned. It's it's kind of creepy and amazing. Yeah. Uh, Chernobyl three eighty or thirty eight twenty eight. This is uh, in the above playlist, but especially interesting due to the narration. Some of the morbid slash pra- pragmatic humor in the writing is a little lost in the sub subtitles, uh, but it's still quite useful in creating an impression of how some people tried to cope with the circumstances they were in. For example, people would say they're going on a date with Masha, which meant cleaning up the Zone M, which was the more con- highly contaminated one. Um, all of these recommendations I'm going to list in the show notes, so don't worry about looking it up. You just go to show notes, and they'll all be linked there. Uh, Louis M., I haven't started Chernobyl, and I'm not sure I could stomach it, but I'm really interested in why it seems like the Soviets are more prone to this kind of disaster. I strongly recommend the American Experience documentary called Command and Control about a 1980s incident that almost resulted in the detonation of a Titan missile in Arkansas. There seemed this Titan missile is a six-story intercontinental ballistic nuclear missile. They seem to have no backup plans for this disaster. They lied to everybody about what was happening and simply got lucky uh, with the result. Uh, this was a PBS documentary, which I'll link. Uh, Jared B. also said that there is a book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser, which is essentially the book version of this uh, the documentary. They just uh, and, and this is like several... 
from what I could tell from reading the Wikipedia article, is, is a collection of several um, nuclear incidents or broken arrow type incidents where Americans have lost um, or damaged a nuclear device. Uh, and it's happened a lot more than I think we'd all be comfortable having <laughs> active awareness of. Yeah. Uh, our our uh, buddy Laura McPhee, or Laura McPhee uh, said, I wanted to point out a book that you might want to add to your reading list, uh, and I've added it to my own, called Voices from Chernobyl, The Oral History of a Nuclear Disaster by Svetlanta Alex- Ale- Alexievich, who is a Nobel laureate and who's living in Belarus when everything went down in Chernobyl. <laughs> um this was shouted out on the podcast because I guess they this this particular fireman and his wife that they're following, she has like a prominent chapter in this, and they essentially pulled her character entirely from that. Huh. Um, Laura continues, Belarus, as you know, received the majority of the fallout after the explosion. She did inter- interviews with people associated at different levels with the Chernobyl accident, including liquidators and her family members, civilians living in the area, etc., I'd also suggest, if you haven't seen it, White Light, Black Rain, The Destruction of Hiroshima, to see another story of a totally man-made horror story of nuclear destruction. Compelling, touching, intense, and important. Okay. So those were, you know, we had a call for uh, Chernobyl, um, to see more stuff on Chernobyl, and that's what we got. The next three or so emails are people talking about the other thing we kind of pondered last week, which is, you know, the... Socialism versus capitalism, democracy versus uh, authoritarianism. Uh, Brian O. Uh, starts off, Chernobyl is a telling is telling a cautionary tale of the dangers of too much socialism. The redefined word has seen a resurgence in popular opinion as it's changed from collection, ownership, and a planned economy to some sort of Robin Hood tale of what most market-based economies are today, which is the government redistributing an increasing portion of the country's wealth created by capitalism through social programs. There will be a desire by some to distance Soviet-style socialism from the modern definition they prefer, but I think that's wrong. The real conflict should be less about whether socialism is good or bad, but how much is too much. Chernobyl is an opportunity to tell the story of what socialism looks like with the volume turned at 100%. I'm looking forward to seeing our main characters represent heroic individualism in the face of a state that cannot abide dissent or freedom of thought, even if it means the death and destruction of their own people. Hmm. So after this episode, I'm I'm falling less into that idea. Yeah. And also, so like the problem with discussing socialism with Americans, um, when I found this in myself, because as people started talking more and more about socialism in the last few years, I've found myself forced to like, OK, actually find out about it. Um, and I think that a lot of uh, economics would take issue with the, the uh, idea of, of Soviet uh, Russia being 100 percent socialist. Um, just like if a Soviet, uh, would say, look at America's problems and it's the result of a hundred percent capitalism. Like, and, and this is, this is human nature, right? Like, I don't know how many tie, uh, conversations I've been in with conservatives and free market capitalists where they will insist that every problem with capitalism can be solved with just more capitalism. <laughs> the problem with the capitalist this is, 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 is capitalism is failing because government's intruding in it or government regulation or this or that. Right. I mean, I think it's. I think it's obvious to anyone thinking that 100% of anything in any direction is probably wrong. Yeah. Um, I think that as a, as a, as a individual private citizen in America, that like, I think America has, is, is too reliant on capitalism and is resistant to try socialism in places where there's clear market failures, like in healthcare and public utilities and education, things like that. But 
Um, I just saw a lot, like, this is a representative email. We'll have a couple others about people, like, I, I just don't know. Like, I, how the average American just doesn't know enough about the Soviet Union and socialism and con- communism to have a fair. It's like, it's like going to a Christian and asking them what's the problem with Islam. Or going to an atheist and asking them what's the problem, what's the strengths and weaknesses of Christianity? Are, are they really going to give a be able to give a fair and accounting? Like you have to kind of listen to 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 the different sides and then kind of synthesize what you think is is happening from all that. At least that's that's how I would view it. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not educated enough on Soviet socialism to to have any kind of opinion on this. Yeah. Uh, uh, honestly, like I'm, I'm hoping that I will understand a little bit more about it by the end of this series, because I know that the writer has done a lot of research, not just on the event, but the, the society around this event. Right. And I, and I obviously would love, cause this is something that I'm currently trying to think and, and, and grapple with myself. Like how much socialism is too much. What is socialism look like is if socialism isn't right for the world now, Will it like what will the effects of like if we had free and abundant energy provided by green sources and nuclear fusion, if we had uh, advanced automation and AI where potentially 90 percent of the populace wouldn't have to work, would socialism be a good answer for that? How and also something I think a lot of leftists should 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 actually pay attention to is when you set up a socialist society, how do you avoid it becoming like this? Where like preserving the party and preserving the workers and preserving becomes so important that you ignore actual facts. And I also think it's obviously I think capitalists and democracies can avoid can (laughs) ignore inconvenient facts just as well. Uh And that's the other thing is just keep in mind that this what you're trying to do is beat human nature. And like democracies have ways of beating human nature and socialism and authoritarian and, and oligarchies. All, everyone has their ways and they have strengths and weaknesses. And we, we really should be looking for best of breed solutions, I would think. But mm-hmm. uh, Chris J has his longtime listener, bald new premium member. Very glad your discussion Chernobyl. Um, I will try to save you a long and boring dissertation between the differences and advantages, both economic and moral of a free market society over essentially co- controlled communist society. In the Soviet Union's communist economy, the people, i.e. the government, have an absolute monarchy across the society. This means they have control of the police, military, firefighters, and all the nuclear facilities. No competition within the power sector, which means no incentive to advance the technology and safety of their facilities. Which I think is ironic because what they were doing is trying to increase the safety of their facility. Right. Which caused this whole accident in the first place. So, right. That's, yeah. yeah. Uh, so if there's no incentive, why the hell would they do that? Right. It's almost like they were trying to provide a good quality of life for the people as best as they could in the limitations of the form of government they had. Uh, since the government owns the nuclear facility, police, and military, they can do things like cut off communication from the citizens and force scientists into extremely dangerous reactors and control the media, etc. Now think of a disaster in recent years in the United States, mostly free market society, the Deepwater Horizon spill. <laughs> this was utter competence by BP, but the difference is they couldn't just throw human lives at the problem until it was fixed. Likewise, they couldn't just surround the coastlines with military and police and threatening people with silence. I mean, there's only so many Mark Wahlbergs in this world. Right. Also, people can choose now to get their gas from another organization or choose to forgo that type of power altogether. Yeah, I I can choose (laughs) not to use gasoline in America. BP is a single entity within our country, and while they certainly can cause damage due to incompetence, there are inherent checks and balances within the free market where a complete and dangerous monopoly reigns in communist or socialist society. Interestingly, Carl S. 
without having any knowledge of uh, Chris J's conversation, has the following to say. Uh, In the discussion about whether something like this could happen in the U.S., it got me thinking about an issue that hit close to my home. Thankfully, the scale of the disaster and the consequences to human life are not like Chernobyl, but the circumstances that led up to the tragedy and the failure of adequate response initially strike a similar chord to my ears. I live in southern Louisiana. In 2010, the Deepwater Horizon well blew up after bosses at BP and on the platform skirted safety regulations and ignored many signs of trouble. The rig blew up, people died, and oil started spewing into the Gulf of Mexico. Aaron mentioned Chernobyl being an entirely man-made event and how rare that seems to be, but the Deepwater Horizon strategy uh, or tragedy is very similar. There's no weather or seismic issue that caused the blowout. It was just totally man-made and couldn't have happened on its own. And the similarities don't stop there. Initially, the government and BP were in denial about the flow rate of the petroleum leaking out of the <laughs> yeah. earth, minimizing the scope of the event. Local seafood producers, along with our state leaders in Louisiana, reassured consumers that the food was perfectly safe to eat and we shouldn't be worried. Within days of the event, as the federal government moved to increase regulations and suspend drilling on deep water platforms in the Gulf, our state leaders got together to have a rally for economic security. There's basically a big protest against regulating oil and gas companies at all out of supposed concern that regulation would hurt our state economy. The rally also framed the oil industry as saviors of the state of Louisiana for all the jobs and wealth it produces. And the people around here continue to treat the oil industry as some kind of powerful but sort of uncaring god. The U.S. economy was still in a crisis then, and there was high unemployment, so there was a lot of temporary workers involved in cleanup work that were exposed to dangerous chemicals without health guidance. They took jobs not out of loyalty or patriotism to their country, but coerced essentially out of economic circumstances to the detriment of their health. I think this is what I'm saying is... Mm -hmm. It's very easy to look at the Soviet Union and look at all the problems and be like, oh, people were forced and coerced and all that, but ignore the fact that if you are living in a state that has very few economic options and there is a disaster like this and they're paying a whole bunch of temp workers and they say jump in here and start scrubbing pelicans with this surficant and disperse this shit in the water, you just do it. You know, you don't wait for scientific consensus. You don't wait to hear. And, and I, I again, like I, I just felt like it was the, the previous guy, not to pick on you, Chris, but a little glib about how like, oh, look at BP and it worked and we had our media covering it and the government had adequate response and people can go to other gas stations besides BP. That that's all true. But how much of it's actually happening? You know? Yeah. Like how much like like what are the fictions that we tell ourselves about our society and the way we organize it? And what are the fictions that the Soviet told themselves about their society and how they organize it? And what does that look like when the rubber meets the road? I like to have a discussion about that. I don't want to have a whole bunch of people that haven't thought about this issue for more than five fucking minutes emailing me. And I'm not going to read things that strike me as flippant or uh, non-serious approaches to this. But I just want to say, that, like, I do think these are conversations that are very important to us to have. These are conversations I think this this show is kind of begging us to have. So let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and you can send those takes to TV at baldmove.com. Uh, please, any takes you have on, on Chernobyl, uh, other disasters, stuff. I'm in the mood to read and think about this stuff. TV at baldmove.com. We'll be back next week with episode three. Um, really digging this series. Thanks for all the great feedback and we'll see you guys then.